Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Today's episode adds to our Gender, Men, and Masculinity series of shows and kicks off a series on gender and climate change and environmental justice. Our guest is Professor James Wilkie, Assistant Professor at Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Wilkie is a consumer psychologist whose research incorporates aspects of implicit social cognition to examine how consumers interpret various aspects of the marketplace in biased fashions. We will be speaking with Professor Wilkie about his current work, which draws on this perspective to examine how consumers' judgment and decisions are influenced by gender cues, numeric information such as prices, and materialistic framing. In particular, Professor Wilkie's recent research has centered on how men's eco-friendly behavior may be negatively correlated to the extent to which that behavior may brand them as feminine. We will also explore Professor Wilkie's suggestions on how pro-environmental marketers might position their communications to incentivize men to engage in more eco-friendly behavior. So welcome, Professor Wilkie. Thank you for having me. Before we dig into your research, I was wondering if you could share how you came to be interested in studying the connection between gender associations and individual decision-making. Was this something that you had particular interest in already, or is it something that came up during the course of your research and other topics? Uh, well, it really started uh, in my days in my doctoral program. Uh, my advisor, Galen Bonehausen at, at Northwestern, is a, a world-known uh, expert for uh, implicit uh, social biases and stereotypes. And it's essentially how people come to automatically judge others and, and other groups uh, according to associations that they hold uh, within their memory. And I was always kind of interested about this idea of how you can see something and automatically judge it in a, in a rudimentary kind of fashion. Uh, so when I started kind of exploring things from that angle, it, it really made sense to me to start thinking about that in terms of, of gender. Uh, for one thing, because it's kind of, uh, you know, in some ways, a dichotomy. So you, you can look at things from a masculine or a feminine fashion. So there's only kind of uh, two different ways to, to look at it, kind of two different dimensions. So that simplifies it a little bit more, but also because it seems to be quite relevant in the way that, that people live their daily lives. They seem to be quite concerned about how masculine or feminine certain things seem to be, uh, even though when you step back and look look at it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that uh, – people might perceive uh, something like a, a car as being uh, masculine or feminine. So that's uh, how I initially kind of got into the uh, this realm of looking at how people automatically perceive things from a, a gender angle, although that's not the, the only uh, area I look at, but that's certainly one of the more uh, prevalent uh, areas of research that I'm doing right now. So in the description of your bio, you state that your work examines how consumer judgments are influenced by gender cues, numeric information mm -hmm. on prices, and on materialistic framing. Um, without going into the findings from your research, could you briefly just define each of these um, terms? 
Sure. So, so gender cues is about the the perception of objects in the environment, uh, and whether or not you perceive them to be more in a to be more feminine or ma more masculine in nature. Um, so, there can be certain properties of stimulus uh, that makes it seem like it's more for men or for women or or masculine or feminine. Uh, although I don't look at it explicitly. Uh, within most of my research, I've, I've done it in a couple studies, uh, you can think of in terms of shapes. So angular shapes are tend to be seen as uh, being more masculine and rounded shapes to be more feminine. So if people see a product that's more rounded, they tend to have this perception that it's for females or it's, for, or it's feminine in nature. And if it's more angular, they tend to perceive it to be more masculine. So that's what I mean by, by gender cues. Uh, from from objects in the environment, so certain properties of an object, and and you use those properties to categorize it as being masculine or feminine, or gender neutral, I'd say as well. Um, for the numeric information component, that is essentially uh, how people look at numbers that they encounter in the environment and the different dimensions in which they perceive those numbers. So, uh, one of the lines of, of research I look at there as well is how people perceive numbers in terms of gender. Uh, so my dissertation was based off of this finding that people tend to perceive even numbers as being uh, feminine in nature and odd numbers as masculine in nature. So that was one of the findings that came out of my dissertation, which we are now exploring. Well, does that then impact how men and women uh, prefer certain products in the environment or certain prices, things like that. So if you, uh, if a woman tends to see a, a product on the shelf and it's priced with an even ending price, do they tend to like that more than in, when it's paired with an odd ending price and vice versa for men? So that's the, the second area. So uh, that involves both prices and also non-price information. Uh, so if there's a product name, uh, so you can think of like WD-40, is a brand name that contains a number and how people perceive the brand based off of the, the numbers it contains. The final aspect is the materialistic uh, cues. So essentially this, and so far we haven't really explored this from a gender angle, but it's this idea that people have multiple roles that they take on throughout their lives. So you might think of yourself as being, in my case, a, uh, uh, a parent or a teacher or a researcher. And these are all certain roles that I take on or certain identities that I'm tied to. And it, depending on which one, which way I'm thinking about myself, it alters the way I think about the world to a certain extent. And so we've looked at essentially how you think about yourself as a consumer and the way that you react uh, versus some other type of role, like being a citizen. And uh, one of the, the projects that we've published on that is essentially when you think about yourself as a consumer, you tend to be more competitive uh, and perhaps a little bit more uh, selfish in your reactions. So you're kind of more interested in how things can, can benefit you versus when you think about yourself as a citizen, it, it seems to be the other way. You seem to be more pro-social, uh, less competitive and trying to help other people. And there are certain cues in the environment that can trigger you to think about yourself as one or the other. 
Uh, and one of them, which we've looked at, is in newspaper articles, for instance, where people are, term, are referred to as being American citizens or American consumers, even though all American citizens are American consumers. So the terms can really be inter used interchangeably, but the way that you interpret the information is uh, different depending on which term seems to be used. Hmm, interesting. And the last part, the American citizen versus American consumers, does that in any way, has your research identified if that in any way precludes people who are not technically citizens from responding positively and identifying with that term? Well, I we haven't um, looked at non-citizens yet uh, because we were basically trying to look at how when you have uh, a role. So if you're so we're looking at the the same individual and how their judgments can change depending on which identity you uh, you prime. Essentially, do you prime this American citizen identity or this American consumer identity? So in that case, we need all of the participants in our studies essentially to be American I see. Um, in order to see how they, they change their behavior. So we haven't looked at non-Americans yet, although we would expect things to be similar if we look outside of the American component, perhaps. Mm -hmm. and, and so the first um, aspect of your research, the gender cues, um, was um, illustrated uh, in a paper that you wrote called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, um, which, addresses the, which addresses the issue of gender cues. And in it, you studied whether certain kinds of food would be perceived as um, to men and women as more gender congruent um, in terms of the choices that the, the consumer would make versus less gender congruent. Um, can you define what that means, gender congruent, and and walk us through what your um, methodology for that study is, as well as your findings? Sure. So that uh, that project is, so it contained kind of multiple experiments, but the the gist there is essentially we can talk about gender cues, and then we can talk about gender identity and maintaining your gender identity. So gender cues is talking about how men and women, all people perceive a certain object as being masculine or feminine. So you can think about uh, the color pink. Now, men and women both tend to interpret that as being more of a feminine color. Okay, so that's more of a, a perception. That's a cue. So if you see a product, a T-shirt on a shelf or on a rack and uh, – both a man and a woman would say, oh, that's a, more of a feminine T-shirt. So there's no difference between men and women there. What is different is whether or not they want to buy that shirt. And that's based off of their gender identity and how they want to maintain it. So the project there was looking at, um, wasn't about gender cues per se, it was about how men and women choose products based off of the gender cues. And we found that men essentially, and this kind of ties into the toxic masculinity component a little bit, but men seem to be have more stress uh, when they have to choose between um, products that are masculine and feminine, whereas women tend to have kind of less stress. 
And this is based off of the idea that men are penalized more for acting in a feminine fashion than women are for acting in a masculine fashion. So in those studies, what we did was we examined how what we refer to as uh, cognitive resources. But if you have a lot of time versus a little bit of time to make a choice, it said that you have more cognitive resources available. You can think about your decision more if you have more time available. You don't have to make a snap judgment. And also, but what goes along with that is if you have more time to think about the, your choice that you want to make, you can also think about the consequences of your choices. So what we found was for men, they would switch their preferences based off of how much time they had available. Some of our participants would have very little bit amount of time. They had to make a judgment right away. What, what did they want? More of a masculine or feminine product. Uh, or the other half of people had as much time as they want to consider which product they want. And interestingly, for women, we didn't see any differences. What they wanted initially, they wanted when they had more time available. But for men, they shifted their preference. They tended to want a little bit more of a feminine set of options on based off of snap judgment. But the more time you gave them, the more they went to more masculine options. And we tied that to the fact that there are more negative consequences that you can consider if you're going to choose a more feminine option for men. Um, I, I like to give the example of myself, and, and of course I, I don't like to admit this about myself all that much, but I tend to do it all the time, especially in interviews, but I really like uh, girly drinks at bars. Uh, the, the pink, uh, frilly, you know, alcoholic beverages that, that people can immediately say, oh, that's more of a feminine drink. But I really enjoy those. I just think they taste a lot better. Um, now, it's, it's completely arbitrary that those are termed to be feminine, whereas uh, more powerful alcohols are, are more masculine. But when I go into a bar, there are times when I will... My first go-to is, oh, I want that type of drink, but I don't always order it. If I have more time to think about it, sometimes I won't. Sometimes I will get more of a, a gender congruent, this is where the term comes in, a gender congruent option for me. And the gender congruent option for men is a, something that's masculine. So whereas the girly drinks a gender incongruent thing, it's it's feminine and I'm a man, and I'm supposed to have masculine things, I go more towards the gender congruent masculine option with time. So do you do that, putting aside your study, do you do that even when you're drinking alone, when you're in a bar by yourself, when nobody's watching? <laughs> um, well, I tend to not drink alcohol by myself. Uh, that would, I think, <laughs> I guess, okay. Well, uh, signal a little bit more of a problem, but... Um, Theoretically, I, for, so for I, what I think you're asking is kind of the, the social pressures yeah. and whether or not you're doing it in public versus private. Mm -hmm. and, and it really does depend. This is where we, we come up with the term gender identity maintenance. So it's not that men and women have to make, you know, the same choices all the time. So as a man, it's, it's not that I have to make masculine choices for every choice that I have to do. It's just that on average, I need to make 
more masculine choices than feminine choices. I see. Um, and if I make a feminine choice, I basically have to compensate for it by making a more masculine choice in the near future to reassert my masculinity. Um, so it could be that I'll order a girly drink, but I'll make up for it by, by ordering a, a big steak for my dinner. So average it out. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you're using, you use the example pink as a mm-hmm. signifier of femininity. And yet um, these colors are also socially constructed in terms of their association with gender as well. Because it, right. it was um, only in, you know, as recently as the earliest 20th century, that pink was actually associated with boys and blue was associated mm. for girls. Um, and, and apparently pink was considered a more decided and stronger color, um, whereas blue was considered more delicate and dainty. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it was through the, apparently the, um, invention of chemical dyes that led to um, sort of this bifurcation um, where mass production of clothes needed to be, you know, done and and bl- light blue and light pink were created to associate with boys and girls. So it, in a way, I'm wondering if you feel like um, these associations, have you studied anything about how permanent these associations are and, and how flexible we have to redefine these associations? Oh, right. So what you've said is is exactly right. It's exactly spot on that these are very arbitrary to a certain extent. They are socially determined and they tend to vary across cultures. Um, so in, in certain cultures, it's uh, you might uh, have a color that's more masculine uh, and in un- a different culture, it could be more feminine. Uh and actually, if you think about, uh, there's been some interesting studies on different languages because uh, non, some non-English languages uh, use uh, gendered pronouns uh, or with all the, or uh, they have a, it's a gendered grammatic system. And within those societies, there are certain objects that are considered masculine or feminine. So one example is, I believe, uh, the moon in German is considered it's, it's paired with der, which is a, a the masculine article, and Germans tend to perceive the moon as being masculine, whereas in Spanish they consider it to be feminine. And the there's a researcher, her name's Laura Boroditsky. She was at Stanford for a while, I believe she's still there, and she looked at how men and women. Um, in these different cultures, the German and Spanish culture would uh, talk about these different objects. And they found that the, the German people tended to, for instance, with the moon, think of it to have much more masculine traits tied to it, very sturdy, um, very strong kind of object of symbol, whereas in the Spanish culture, much more feminine, a very uh, nurturing type of object. Yet it's just a rock essentially that's that's going around the earth but the these two do different groups of people kind of perceive the traits that are attached to it very differently um and and that's something that's essentially very arbitrary and it can shift over time now as far as how flexible it is that really speaks to i believe the amount of resistance that you face from others to actually change these associations 
Um, so I think that one reason why toxic we talk about toxic masculinity a lot is there hasn't been much of a move from uh, from men to change the perceptions of what is more feminine. You know, what is acceptable for a man to have? Um, so I, I can uh, think of an example of like a male nurse. Okay, it's perhaps a little bit more acceptable today, but it's still considered the, the, the occupation of a nurse is still strongly tied to this notion of being a, more of a feminine occupation. Whereas on the female side, there's been a lot more movement, social movement for females to take on more stereotypical masculine roles. And, and it's more acceptable for them to behave in a more masculine fashion without being penalized. And through that end, they've kind of changed some of the associations that are t that were used to be tied to more masculine objects. So I, I um, read about the interesting movement in which it used to be not okay for women to wear pants in America because pants were a very, that's what men wore and women were supposed to wear skirts and dresses. Uh, but, and, and if a woman were to wear pants out in public, it was a huge deal because a woman wasn't supposed to do it. Uh, but through kind of this social movement, more and more women started to do it and it became accepted. And now if you see a woman walking around pants, uh, it's it's completely fine. Pants are, aren't seen as being a masculine or feminine thing anymore. A friend of mine just recently shared with me that her um, 13 year old niece came out as bisexual, and mm. um, she refused to wear a dress. She hasn't worn a dress in I think seven years or something, and she mm. refused to wear a dress for her uh, middle school graduation. But in the end, she wore one. And, you know, I guess maybe she capitulated to pressure or from her family. I'm not sure exactly. But but it, it is still, quote unquote, unacceptable to wear pants in certain situations, depending on the oh, weight sure. of that social situation, I guess, for women. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so I guess I would I would say that the the pressures are less than they used to be. Mm -hmm. They're still there, but they're not there to the same degree. So just talking about the, um, you mentioned language cross-culturally. What about countries like China where um, languages and nouns are not gendered? Were there any studies by this professor at Stanford to, to assess whether there was any um, consistency with her findings in those cultures? I know it's not you know, your area question. of research, but... Yeah. <laughs> You would have to ask Laura about it. <laughs> okay. uh, but but I would guess that, uh, you know, that was I think that was an easy an easier kind of way to look at it based off of the, the language structures. And I think that was kind of the nature of her research question was to just compare country or nationalities that, that had uh, different language structures that um where there would be a, a difference in the, the masculine or feminine uh, article attached to the, to the word. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about the, the languages that don't have those, mm -hmm. yeah, to be honest. Okay. And in the same study, the Real Men Don't Eat Quiche study, you hmm. also reference that there are negative psychological consequences attached to gender norm transgressions 
um, that are greater mm-hmm. for men, experienced more by men than they are for women. And what do you mean by um, negative psychological consequences? Is it is it like external factors like bullying um, that results in them having a response to the external factors or is it internally, completely internally generated? Like how would you um, distribute, you know, the causes of those psychological consequences? Well, it could be, it could be either. Um, it's, uh, you kind of have your self, uh, your self identity. And, and if you're not uh, comfortable with, with your identity, uh, based off of uh, what you choose, the the types of norms that you transgress, then certainly you can feel bad about yourself without even being bullied. You could feel, well, why am I different from from what's normal? Uh, so certainly that that uh, has some uh, consequences attached to it psychologically, but also the the external are I, I think are also very severe. So a number of studies have shown that. Uh, boys, for instance, growing up, they are penalized more for behaving in uh, or to playing in a way that, that girls play than the other way around. Then girls get penalized for playing in uh, like the boys play. Um, so there's uh, a lot of, uh, I'd, I'd say, the bullying in terms of that aspect, uh, playing like a, a boy or a girl, is much more severe on the the. Men, the side of the men than, than on the side of the women. Now, I, I do want to preface that by saying that that hasn't always been the case. Um, it, it just depends on how, uh, again, how society views things. So because of, of these uh, social movements, again, uh, that that women you know, fought very hard for, um, it's become more acceptable for them to in, in many ways, behave more like uh, like men did stereotypically, uh, and the, there hasn't been the same level of movement on the other side, and that's kind of what I'm getting at there. Now, that's not true across every domain, but that's uh, kind of what I mean by the the psychological consequences is your your men tend to face more stigma for behaving in a feminine way than women for behaving in a masculine way. Mm-hmm. And, and you also contend that as processing resource availability increases, meaning they have more time, those who desire to maintain their gender identity norms are more, are more likely to make choices that are gender congruent. Did I hear that correctly? Or yes. was it the... Okay. Yes. So if they have more time, yeah. they're actually more likely to adhere to gender congruent decision-making rather... So if they, the less time they have, mm-hmm. that means... Um, they're more likely to sort of go with their gut and what they like. But if they think about right. it more, they're more likely to think about, you know, the social stigma and other factors. Exactly. Huh. You're, you're okay. more likely to he- hesitate by thinking, oh, you, so in my instance, oh, I, I'd really like to, to order, you know, a cosmopolitan or something like that. You know, something mm-hmm. really girly. Oh, I, I, this, I read the menu, look at the ingredients. Oh, this sounds delicious. Uh, and if the waiter was there at the time, I would just say, oh, I'll have this mm-hmm. uh, without even thinking about it. But let's say, oh, it, the, the waiter is, is busy and it's taking some time. I might think a little bit more about the situation, uh, who I'm with, if I'm out with my fr- you know, guy friends or whatever, and think about, well, how might they react if I order this? Um, might they you know, make fun of me? Are they 
kind of joke around and, and say that, oh, that's a really girly drink and say something that, that could kind of hurt my ego a little bit. Um, and the more time you have, the more cognitive resources you have available, the more that you can consider that type of information, which means that I'm going to be less likely to actually choose that, that initial preference that I had. I wanted to get your feedback about the whole President Obama when he was, you know, eating arugula. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and there was a time where he was, I believe it's somewhere in the Midwest, maybe it was Ohio, and he was um, visiting farmers or um, farms and referencing arugula's prices. Um, and then, you know, he got a lot of criticism for being elitist that he was eating arugula or he liked arugula, even though the farmers themselves are growing arugula, you know. And then the, uh, the other was when he had um, put mustard on his burger, I think, if I recall correctly. And I just thought, you know, he's been, there's been a lot of um, criticism um, of him based on his race. And I'm wondering how much it's less, mm-hmm. more about his masculinity, a pushback against his masculinity and him sort of transgressing, you know, traditional mm-hmm. norms of what it is to be a man versus about his race and what your thoughts were on that. Huh. That's a good question. You know, I, hmm. You know, I, I kind of perceived what he was doing it was basically saying it was kind of along the lines of um, I don't know if there's a way I can talk about this smoothly or not. <laughs> but um, I, I get I guess what what seems to be the case with Trump anyway is it seemed like throughout his campaign and even now, he likes to throw out labels a lot. And he likes to say that anyone that's part of this group or that group is bad or good. And it's very kind of split judgment. Um, you know, whereas Obama, I think, was a little bit more even keel. He was more about saying, well, no, I mean, a person is a person. If you like mustard, that's okay. If you like arugula, that's fine too. Um, you know, it's completely acceptable for a, a man to to do this, or for a black person to be president. It's it's fine if the individual is is good and competent and comfortable. Um, and unfortunately, I think there's been you know pushback uh, with with that lately, it's, and swung too much the other way. And I'm not exactly sure why that that has. Uh, why people have gravitated towards that so much, other than the fact that it it is easier to react that way than to think about things th- through, because it does take effort to think about things. It does take time to think about, oh, is this, well, maybe I shouldn't think this because this person actually is this, this, or this. Um, it's just a lot easier to say, oh, yeah, you know, if you're... Uh, if you come to this country and you're an illegal immigrant, you don't belong here, get out. Well, that's much easier to say, and you don't really have to think about it very much and move on to the next thing. Um, it's much more effortful to sit down and actually have a conversation and figure out, well, okay, is this 
person who's coming here, are they a good person or not? Um, you know, are they part of a gang or are they fleeing as seeking asylum for good reason? Um, so I know that takes off it off of Obama a little bit and putting it more on a uh, conversation about Trump. But I think the there's a real contrast in uh, I, I think the way that people either gravitated or didn't towards each of those messages from 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 both sides. Um, so, so you're basically kind of reinforcing what I my perception that um, President Obama was very comfortable engaging in non-gender congruent behavior and mm-hmm. being open to whatever. Um, you know, social stigma might be applied towards that um, lack of conformity, whereas you're saying President Trump um, is actually someone who reinforces those um, gender congruent behaviors and and punishes, you know, those who um, who choose to transgress. I think so. I, I mean, I think it's it's really a battle between um, do we is it is it important to have these norms or not? Mm-hmm. And, and I think with Obama, the, the movement was let's break down these norms and, and do something entirely different. And with Trump, I think it's, let's bring back these norms um, because, you know, these are important to our heritage and our values and everything like that. So it's, um, it's been a real, I think, clash of, of how we want to move things forward. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about numbers. Um, in, mm-hmm. in 2011, you published a paper in Scientific American titled, What is the Sex of 17? So who would have thought that numbers have an associated gender? But apparently across cultures, people see, as you mentioned, odd numbers as male and even numbers as female. Was there any um, reason as to why that was? First off, so the, the the paper was published in Journal of Experimental Psychology General, but that the Scientific American that was an article uh, that was an interview that I did about that paper. Okay. Um, but uh, that was kind of an interesting thing. So I, I like to look at uh, uh, so I, for instance, uh, male and female. There's a, a dichotomy, and if there's no influence of some outside factor, you would expect things to be 50-50. And when I was looking at numbers, I was thinking the same thing. Well, you have even numbers and you have odd numbers. And initially, the the project was about this idea. I was just looking at numbers randomly one day. I was kind of daydreaming, and I was thinking about research, and I came to realize that, you know, for whatever reason, I really like even numbers more than odd numbers. Um, I just like them more. They seem more pleasant. They seem more warm. Uh, they're easier to do math in. And when you're kind of a, a PhD program and you're kind of weird like me, I guess, you you might then put yourself out there and ask other people, <laughs> which do you like more? Do you like even numbers more or odd numbers more? And time and time again, I, you know, I asked maybe 10 or 12 people this, and every single one said, Oh, I like even numbers more. Uh, and they all said, yeah, they seem they're just more pleasant. And I was thinking, well, that's really strange because if it was just chance, you would expect, oh, you know, half would say even, half would say odd, but everyone was saying even numbers. So 
initially I was looking at it from the, the standpoint of, well, it's really interesting. People seem to like even numbers more. They seem to think they're warmer, they're more pleasant, and odd numbers seem to be kind of colder, and people want to stay away from them, and, and they don't like them as much. And uh, at the same time, I was working on the uh, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche paper. I was getting more and more interested in the gender perception side of things as well. And and my advisor kind of keenly noted, he, he said, well, you know, um, people tend to stereotypically think of women as being warmer and, and more social and more friendly and men as being more stereotypically competent and colder. And that's what you're finding with the numbers. So maybe you should look and see if um, people perceive even numbers as being more feminine and odd numbers as being more masculine. So that's when we kind of took the project in that direction, and that's what we, we found. Now, within that, we looked at uh, people, we looked at Americans, and we looked at uh, people from India as well. And we found the, the same thing that uh, even numbers tend to be perceived as uh, feminine, odd numbers as masculine. And so, so, so far, every culture that we've looked at, that's what we've found. Now, I've had people come up to me since then from other cultures, and they've either agreed with me as well, or they have disagreed and said, oh, no, no, it's the exact opposite. I, people <laughs> in, in uh, uh, people, I, I believe there's, there's one person from Russia, and they said, oh, people in, in Russia, they, they think odd numbers are very feminine, and even numbers are very masculine. And then they gave a rationale for it. So, again, this is similar to... Um, I, I believe the the, the moon uh, example that I gave, and it, it could very well uh, vary depending on what culture you're talking about. But it seems to be that at least in many cultures, they do seem to think that some numbers are more feminine and some numbers are more masculine, which is quite strange when you think about it because it's just it's a number, <laughs> you know. It's uh, it, you know it doesn't have any uh, it's it it doesn't walk around it, it doesn't have different you know biological uh, you know parts of their the body or anything like that i mean it's just a it's a shape it's a number it's an arbitrary symbol and yet people tend to perceive it being more feminine more masculine well it's um i guess i'm just going to add to your uh, repertoire of differing opinions on numbers <laughs> and i'm going to say oh, okay. Fair <laughs> that my perception is is not looking at the dichotomy between odd and even but looking mm -hmm. at prime and not prime because um mm, prime okay. numbers i think one might argue would be considered you know when when i've talked to people who are math people they've they've really there's been a pretty consistent response that they're really interested in and have an affinity to prime numbers, you know, because of their powers and properties. Um, but mm -hmm. but if you take if you really kind of dig down, I think two is the is the most powerful prime number, right? Because oh, okay. and that happens to be even. Um, it's the okay. smallest, you know, one might say prime numbers are immutable, they're impenetrable, you know, because of their properties. And yet two mm -hmm. is flexible in, in, in both having those properties and yet also later on being an even number. So that kind of, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if that throws a wrench in your whole theory. <laughs> well, no, I mean, again, it, it's, for one thing, it's, it's based off of averages, right? Mm -hmm. But, right, um, right. 
it really it it does depend on well what traits do you associate with these numbers and if you bring in the the angle of oh well uh, basically bringing the the rationale that that you just did and saying well this is a prime number and prime numbers are associated with these things which are associated more with masculinity um then i could see where you came came from with that uh interestingly the uh the first person who talked about uh, even numbers and odd numbers as being masculine and feminine was Pythagoras, mm. who came up with the, you know, the, the whole concept of even and odd numbers. And it's been kind of lost uh, over time, but the Pythagoras and his followers, it was essentially a, a mystical cult. Mm. Um, so, so we remember all the, the great mathematical components, but actually the reason why those were done was because they thought that they could explain the world and the universe, everything that's going on through mathematics. Mm. They thought it was the language from God and that by understanding this, we could understand anything. Um, so they had these very strange rituals. Uh, and they had these, uh, I believe it's called the Table of Ten. And they, they basically said you could understand anything in the universe if you knew these, uh, if it falls on, on one side or the other uh, in this continuum for these different dimensions. If anything is masculine, then it is also odd. If anything is feminine, it's also even and vice versa. If anything is odd, then it's masculine. If anything's even, then it's feminine. Um but their rationale was based off of the idea that the number one, I believe, is there's only a, a singular entity and it's not divisible. Therefore, it's stable and strong <laughs> um, and therefore it's masculine. <laughs> so it's a little bit different, I guess. Um, well, kind of the, the way that you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with Pythagoras. Yeah. And ha- have you ever <laughs> seen the film Pi, the independent film? I have not, okay, but I, I definitely should. You, you you heard about it, I'm sure, right? Because it mm-hmm. it, it reinforces yes. Pythagoras's, I guess, um, theory that there's some you know mysticism in numbers because the the protagonist there um, does research on the Torah, which I didn't realize until I saw that film that the Hebrew alphabet was you know had a correspondence to numbers, and that there was some in the plot of the film there was some underlying code in the Torah to the secrets of the universe. <laughs> So. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that have been lost through time, but yet are still embedded mm. in, in the way we learn about things today. So that, that brings us to the main topic of today's conversation, which is gender and climate change. And your latest research paper is titled, Is Eco-Friendly Unmanly? The Green Feminine Stereotype and Its Effect on Sustainable Consumption. And it examines the relationship between gender identity maintenance, which you've talked about, and green behavior, mm-hmm. specifically in men. So can you summarize for us um, the findings from that? Right. So this is actually um, closely tied to the, the earlier work from the real Mandoni Kish paper. But it's taking it to look at the uh, environmental context. So... Uh, for quite a long time, uh, researchers have found that men are not uh, as environmentally friendly as, as women. Uh, and there's been 
kind of a, an interest in understanding, well, why is that? And in the past, uh, researchers have largely looked at this idea that there are personality differences. So women tend to be more altruistic, pro-social. They care more about uh, you know, the, the future for the children, et cetera. Um, and they tried to tie then, well, that would then explain why uh, women tend to engage more in, in pro-environmental activities than, than men. And, and we're certainly, we don't disagree with, with that. Um, and we, we certainly think that that is an important component to all of this. But this is basically saying, well, there's also perhaps another piece to the puzzle in that it also seems to be the case that uh, environmentalism tends to be seen as being more of a feminine concept than than not being environmental. So therefore, if it's if that's true, and, and if people think that it's more feminine, then men are going to be more resistant to uh, engaging in that type of activity because again, they tend to be penalized more for doing feminine things. So that's uh, really the the gist of kind of the first half of the project, in, in which we found that that does seem to be the case that both men and women like the color pink that we were talking about before. They do seem to think that uh, environmental products and environmental activities are more feminine in nature. And those people who actually engage in those activities, they also tend to be a little bit more feminine than, than masculine. Um, so the, the second part was, okay, well, if this is the case, is there something that can be done essentially to, to help men actually engage and, and become more, um, uh, more eco-friendly? And... The the two ways that we went about it, I think one, the the first way basically is, again, we talked about gender identity maintenance and how you don't have to do masculine things all the time. You just have to do be more masculine on average. So one thing that we, we found was if you were, if you affirm a, a man's masculinity before they are making choices between whether or not they want to purchase a, an eco-friendly product or not, they're more likely to purchase the eco-friendly product if they already feel like they're very masculine, if they're secure in their masculinity, then it's okay to basically purchase these green products. It's less of a threat compared to those who haven't had their masculinity affirmed. They're kind of at a lower level and they come off as being more feminine when that happens. So that's kind of the idea of the gender identity maintenance. Um, now, unfortunately, that's not really that feasible, I think, for, for marketers and retailers to do, to walk around and say, hey, you look really, really manly today. Now, would you like to buy some green products? Um, the other way around it is really, and it also hits on what we talked about earlier, is, is just changing the the gender associations attached to these things. So if something's perceived as being feminine, well, then let's not have it be perceived as feminine anymore. Let's uh, make it uh, seem more masculine in nature. And that was kind of the, the other types of uh, experiments that we did was, well, what if instead of having, um, we used an example of a charity, instead of having a charity called Friends of Nature and uh, kind of the typical light green color, um, uh, be kind of the logo. What if it was a dark green, which is darker colors or more masculine, and it's more about, uh, I think we called it the 
Wilderness Rangers charity. And again, instead of calling it the environment nature, which is more feminine, we call it wilderness, which is more masculine. And what we found in that study was men were much more likely to donate money to that wilderness rangers charity than they were the friends of nature charity and essentially it's it's the same thing they're doing the same type of uh work with the environment but one is framed in a more masculine fashion uh whereas the other one's kind of more typical feminine fashion um and this is really kind of taking a page i think out of what marketers have done in other industries where they take a type of product which has been seen as being feminine for a long time and they change the associations attached to it. So one example is diet sodas and the term diet is typically associated with femininity and about 10 years or so all of a sudden you start seeing these zero calorie sodas. Okay, essentially they're diet, but we're not going to call them diet. We're going to call them zero calorie. The the packaging is very dark. Uh, Pepsi Max I, was one of the first ones, and it was a uh, the can and the pattern was much more of a masculine, darker colors, sharper uh, images than uh, diet Pepsi was. Uh, of course, there's zero Coke, which is the the black and the red. Uh, and then Dr. Pepper 10, they ca- caused a little bit of a, a stir when they came out. They explicitly had the tagline, it's not for women. Dr. Pepper 10, it's not for women. <laughs> um, so th- it was say, and, and even in some of the advertisements that they had, they said, you know, this is a drink for men only. This is a, ma- you know, basically a masculine drink with zero calories. Now, the interesting thing was that, that I read that didn't necessarily turn off women from buying Dr. Pepper 10. Because it's okay for women to buy masculine things. At least it's more okay for them to buy masculine things than men feminine things again. So it didn't really turn women off as much with that type of positioning as it did men the other way around. Um, So really all we're saying is, well, you could try uh, something like that and basically make a more masculine version of these these green products. And, And when we did that in our experiments anyway, it seemed to increase the the chances that men would would purchase it or or be interested in purchasing in the future. And the the diet soda study, what year was that done? Uh, Well, that wasn't wasn't a study. That was just what was done in the marketplace. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, Body wash is another example. Um, There's a pretty famous uh, commercial, uh, and it was Zest Body Wash. And for a long time, um, body wash was associated with, with femininity. Only females would use body wash. And what Zest did was <clears throat> they had Ironhead Hayward, who was a famous football player at the time, really big uh, running back, I believe, for the Bears. And he was in this commercial, uh, and it was showing him using Zest body wash, but then it was interspersed with clips of him running over people on the football field um, with really loud noises. And and then he was basically talking about, you know, this isn't for women, like real men use body wash and (laughs) um, a lot of loud noises, action sequences, really uh, geared towards male audiences and basically uh, removing this obstacle that, or, or this notion that body wash, if you use body wash and you're a man, that 
that you're doing something feminine, he's basically was relieving that type of pressure and saying, no, real men actually use this. You know, I use this. I am the, when you think of one of the most manly men at the time, he was one of the most manly men and I use it. Therefore it's okay for men to use it. Mm. So it's kind of removing that obstacle. I, I wonder if these, um, um, sort of marketing messages, um, were to be reintroduced, um, now, whether there'd be a different response, because as I was listening to you talk about the whole, you know, diet soda, black and red, um, imagery, it actually, as a woman, it makes me think about, (laughs) my first thought was private military contractors <laughs> for whatever reason oh, okay. and and the fact okay, yeah and the fact that you you um said that they they had messaging that was specifically you know targeting men um and excluding women mm-hmm. I, and and yet women weren't um um you know deterred from purchasing it i i don't know if that would happen now because there's so much of a cultural consciousness around um, you know, gender in, in our, mm-hmm. you know, um, discourse now. And, and in fact, because sure, we're sure. more aware, I, I might sense that there'd be more of a pushback. Um, because when you, when you talked about nature and wilderness, you know, I mm-hmm. thought to myself, nature, you know, we, that's a, it's kind of, um, positioning our, um, planet as an equal, you know, as something to be preserved and respected. And then wilderness you associate with dominating and conquering, right? And which we Mm -hmm. all, um, I think for most people who are, you know, environmentalists, um, push Mm -hmm. back against. And so if I were a consumer hearing those messages, I would actually resist, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even as a man, I don't know, but it would be interesting to to see, um, you know, what that would bring now. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, the, I think there's a difference as far as kind of saying, do you agree with the traditional stereotypes or not, uh, or if you think it's it's if it's fair to say that men should be seen as being more aggressive and, and, and kind of buying into all that. And kind of these suggestions, I, I think, are based off of not changing that idea, but playing more to it. Now, if that's no longer the case, which, which I think is what you're saying, um, or or it's, it's becoming more the case that, uh, that, that, that there's something wrong with that idea. Um, then obviously, yeah. The, then the, you wouldn't want to use this type of, of messaging because then you're saying you're you're putting something out there that that's negative that that people don't necessarily believe. It, it's a it's a very interesting thought about well, do people really think about this this way now or not? And and there's a, a term that's come out now or it's been out for a while. This idea of pinkwashing. Although it's a little bit more on the the feminine side, although I, I think you're, you can also argue that it's becoming the case on the masculine side as well, is where you're. It's becoming obvious that you are really playing into this uh, by going over the top uh, when it's unnecessary. Um, so there are kind of in the past, if you want to make 
if you wanted to target more women uh, with a product, what you would do is, oh, you would just make a, a version that, that has the colors pink. And you would call that, oh, this is for women. And, and for a while, that may have been seen as okay. But, but nowadays, it's almost like, oh, this is insulting. Uh, you think only only women like pink colors, and, and this is what it comes down to. So there's been more of a backlash uh, towards that type of marketing, where I think if you do things a little bit more subtly, it, it's not really going into right and wrong, per se. It's just kind of removing a, a, an obstacle. So instead of saying, instead of a tagline that says, it's not for men, um, it's more about it's it's okay for men to have this it's okay for women to have this you know um to to not kind of break it down by a man and a woman thing but trying to make it more just gender neutral i think is an, another way way to go as well well i also you know want to bring us back to your one of your original premises which is how marketers can help men engage in behavior that is more eco-friendly so that mm-hmm. that phrase, you know, begs the question, why should men have to be quote unquote manipulated to behave in doing, you know, into in, in behavior that is the right thing to do? Why not as advertisers use this opportunity to redefine what is appropriate behavior for the social good? You know, so instead mm-hmm. of manipulating what we know is the case, create new associations where engaging in eco-friendly behavior is desirable for all genders and in particular men. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, that's actually somewhat in line with, with what I, w- I was talking about as well. I mean, there's, I guess you could say that um, you could make it so that instead of a situation where you have all oh, a masculine version and a feminine version, you could really instead work in, on and making, I, I suppose, more of a, again, a gender, making it more of a gender neutral issue than what it has been. Because I think in the past, the way marketers have either consciously or unconsciously uh, positioned things, uh, it's been more in in a feminine way or, or, or with things tied to feminine associations. But if you, I think, reframe the the conversation um such that it's not really a tied to a gender per se then then certainly um i think that would be be worth doing and i agree that it, it, this is something again that's it's arbitrary you know it, it, what the gender associations that we have and so i don't think that these gender associations these stereotypes should be preventing anyone from doing something that's better for the environment better for the world Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the closing of our conversation, Professor Wilkie. Um, and in okay. the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio, I've created an engendered questionnaire for all of our guests. Okay, interesting. Yep. The first question is, mm-hmm. what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Uh, that's a a good question so i I mean i think what's at stake is if we want the world to be a more civil place than what it is and i think if we 
if we do, and, and unfortunately, it just seems like it's going the opposite direction lately. Uh, but I, I think really, it, it's it's when you put, I guess it's somewhat cliche, but when you put labels on, on things, it, it creates more problems. And, and the less labels that you can have, the less judgment that people are going to make based off of those labels, and I think people will become more civil. Okay, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is uh, there is, I think, more of a voice. There's more of a passion lately uh, for people to engage in this type of change for the better. So so podcasts like this are, are now possible, and, and people are listening, they're interested, they're passionate about this. And so there's a real push for, for this change to happen. So that, that does give me hope. And finally... Uh, and by no means do you need to answer all four of these parts, um, okay. but feel free to if you'd like. <laughs> four, 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 okay. <laughs> what can we do more of, less of, start or stop addressing this answer to our listeners? Certainly one thing that we can do more of is pausing and, and looking at an individual and thinking about them instead of making snap judgments about them um, as far as judging them as being a good person or a bad person. I think, unfortunately, the way things are as far as uh, the way humans uh, process information kind of implicitly and very quickly, we tend to come to rash judgments very quickly when really it's not deserved. And so I think what what really needs to be thought of is is not we need to start looking at people more as individuals and not part of a, a certain group that we hold stereotypes or prejudices towards. Okay, thank you very much. Right, sure thing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.